0: All right, open your Bibles to Exodus 32. And before we launch into these final chapters of Exodus, I would like to thank Glenna for our whirlwind trip through 31 chapters in two weeks. Can we give her a hand? It reminded me of the last time I was up here last May, if you remember, when we did a jet tour through all 28 chapters of Acts at once. You'll want to keep those seatbelts fastened, because as I'm sure you could tell from the lesson, while we're covering significantly less chapters today, they are packed, and be assured, it's a turbulent ride ahead. A ride that will show the ugly beast of idolatry and sin, and we'll finish the book and our time together today with the beauty of repentance, forgiveness, and restoration, as we anticipate what comes next, Leviticus. Chapter... <clears throat> chapter 32 and 30 to 34 should not be a surprise. With all God has been doing to show his glory, we have seen the people still oppose Moses and therefore God. And we see this in full force in chapter 32, blatant disobedience of so many of the Ten Commandments. These three chapters interrupt the chronology of events of what's been good news so far, One commentator says that these three chapters form a pivot of the entire Pentateuch. The account of the tabernacle, its design, purpose, and construction is interrupted in a way that has great significance for appreciating the entire book of Exodus. We'll see the chapter, the challenges to Israel's faith both posed by the dominance of idolatry and idolatrous thinking still very much alive in the minds of the people of Israel while they are at Mount Sinai. Israel Turns against God and his Ten Commandments. What now? This chapter leaves us with so many questions. The people have very publicly and very terribly betrayed Yahweh. They have unquestionably and even eagerly broken the divine covenant that held their only promise of divine presence and blessing. Moses, in turn, publicly recognizes this rejection and rebellion. By so forcefully breaking the tablets of the covenant in front of the people, what will become of them? Would they simply be left to die in the wilderness by the God they had rejected? Or would they perhaps wander off into the promised land on their own, left to face whatever fate might be theirs without the leading of Yahweh, which could possibly include annihilation at the hands of the Canaanites? For all God has done for Israel, have they changed one bit No, they remain exactly the same because their hearts have not changed. If the first exodus in the book was complete, they should have lived happily ever after. But instead, they live in sin, evil, depravity, obstinance, and death forever after. A complete exodus must include both the horizontal and the vertical, the whole package. We are all the same without Christ, without a changed heart and a new nature, Chapter 32 begins with the ugly beast of sin and idolatry as the Israelites make a demand of Aaron, make us gods. This is the influence of the polytheistic world around them. They had very recently experienced God's real-life demonstration of his greatness and goodness toward them, yet they were so quick, and you could say eager, to be swept back into pagan idolatry. God had miraculously led them out of Egypt. Because of his love for them, he had crushed the world's first superpower to save his people. They witnessed this amazing demonstration in the salvation he provided when he divided the Red Sea for his people to pass through and then destroyed Pharaoh's entire army. And yet, less than a year later, not only were they looking for a God they could see, but a God they claim would lead them forward. In Acts seven thirty nine and 40, when Stephen is... Stephen's sermon before the high priest, he points out that in their hearts, they had already returned to Egypt. We look at the children of Israel and we think them foolish, unwise, and even ungrateful. God has given them the law through his mediator, Moses, and has shown them great and mighty works, making it obvious to the nations around them that they are his chosen people. Yet their spiritual understanding is no deeper than the veneer of religiosity. Couldn't we put ourselves in the exact same position? We have tremendous privileges, in fact, greater than the children of Israel. They had Moses and the miracles he performed, but we have the greatest of all miracles, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have the inerrant, inspired word of God. Yet we are no more serious about our worship than the children of Israel were in the day of the golden calf. Satan would like nothing more than to discourage us from worshiping God as we should by filling our minds with thoughts of discontent. The hymns are too old and stuffy. The service is too long. I don't like the way everyone dresses. It's either too dressy or too casual. And why does church have to be the same time as that really good football game? And for new moms, is it worth it getting all the kids ready to come? One excuse I heard years ago that still blows me away. Why does everyone walk around with a Bible under their arm? What? Just like we do, Israel had grown tired of worshiping Yahweh as they should, as God had commanded through Moses and Aaron. And just like the Israelites, it's about our hearts when we come to worship. Has it grown cold, distracted by the things of the world, discontent with routine, looking for something fresh and new? When this happens, and it does to all of us at one time or another, we must get on our knees because what we really need is prayer. When we admit or confess to God honestly what we are thinking and feeling about worshiping him, suddenly we see our pride, our sin before a holy God who deserves nothing less than pure worship. As Psalm 103 verse 1 states, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Ask God to take away that boredom and that pride and replace it with a freshness and enthusiasm we once had, and deep down we know we need. And so we see the people of Israel acting very much like we do today. There is nothing new under the sun. The people have grown tired of waiting, and the old adage, which maybe was not so old back then, comes out. What has God done for us lately? After all, 40 days is a long time to wait. Do you remember what you were doing 40 days ago? I counted back from today's date. December 24th, Christmas Eve. Doesn't that seem like a lifetime ago? That gives us some context to the people's grumbling and Moses about Moses being gone for so long and wondering if he's ever going to return. In their impatience, they take matters into their own hands. So they ask for a god, a god to lead them, and what followed was the golden calf. There is little doubt that the people saw the calf as a representation of Yahweh. While certain images may have reminded the people about God, they were still corruptible images made with corruptible materials made to represent the one who created those materials and then cursed them. Romans eight twenty one and 22 tells us the earth longs to be set free from the bondage of corruption, from the curse of Genesis 3.15. Burnt offerings and peace offerings were rendered to the people's form of Yahweh. Burnt offerings sought atonement for the worshiper's sin, and peace offerings celebrated the worshiper's relationship, ongoing covenant relationship with Yahweh. These forms of worshiping Yahweh were appropriate, as we've seen in Exodus. Had they been worshiping Yahweh appropriately, this would have been a good thing. But instead, they were worshiping exactly the way as had been forbidden in the second commandment in Exodus 20, and were ignoring the law that they had solemnly agreed to keep in Exodus 24, verses 3 and 7, when they promised obedience and exclaimed, All the Lord has said we will do. Rising up to play, in verse 6, is not just a game of badminton in the park after a nice picnic meal. In the original language, it is something far more sensual suggested there. And we understand that when we see Moses' reaction when he comes down the mountain, sees the calf and the dancing. Why would he be so offended at dancing? Didn't David dance before the ark to worship God? But this is obviously something far different, which we see in verse 25 when the passage states that Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, or as the ESV said, broken loose. Moses saw that the people were practicing pagan rituals like the surrounding idolatrous nations and enjoying the pleasures of sin with no inhibitions. As we read this account, we are shocked at the, with the speed at which Israel's rejection and betrayal of God became full-blown. This is evident in God's own words in verse 8. They turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. God calls them stiff-necked, which means they're as stubborn as could be as far as spiritual things were concerned. God tells Moses to leave him alone in his wrath and allow him to destroy the people and start over with Moses and make him a great nation. We know this will not happen. God has made a covenant with his people to Abraham and his seed. Remember? Land, seed, blessing, right? But they still had so much to learn, so much divine theology, and just as we do in the church today. Many of the Israelites, just like the church, had all the right words, actions, and knew what should happen in worship, but there was no heart change that went with it. This is much like my granddaughter, Brooklyn. Her mama is a photographer, and for Brooklyn's third birthday, she received a darling pink camera. She has watched her mama hold uh, many photography sessions and learned how to stand and what to say. She wanted to do a photo shoot with Grammy and Papa. That's us. She told us where to stand, where to look, when to walk, and the whole time she is clicking away. She is not a real photographer, but mimicked what she saw with all the mannerisms and all the lingo. However, all she got was bubbles every time she clicked her very cute camera. (laughs) While she can mimic what she sees a real photographer do, she still needs training to learn how to take pictures. Israel was the same way. They have had amazing experiences as God has performed works and miracles. We saw this as well with the apostles in the New Testament. All throughout the Gospels, they walked with Christ and witnessed his power through teaching, through miracles, through healings. In Luke 18.34, we are told that they had been with the Lord for many years, but understood none of these things. Back in Exodus 32, in verse 7, God tells Moses, go down at once. This phrase is intense. It means to move. It's the same intensity as get down when someone is shooting. It demands an urgent and immediate response. Your people, who you brought up, is the language of disowning. God is telling Moses that these are not my people. I want nothing to do with them. God declares they have turned aside which is the language of apostasy in the Old Testament. Many had joined in the corrupt activities, and those who did not did nothing to stop it. This explains why the nation as a whole is called out by God. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. For all God has done externally in the Exodus, they are still stubborn, set in their ways, and can never be transformed by themselves. God says they have corrupted themselves. In the Hebrew, this does not mean they're beyond the hope of redemption. Rather, it's a word that indicates they have acted perversely, corruptly, by doing something so wrong. This does not mean they were no longer capable of doing good. There is still hope for them, and Moses is sent down at once to deal with them. When God states they made for themselves a golden calf, he clearly defines Israel's sin and their violation of the second commandment. They worshiped it clearly indicating that they're in their belief that it was a God and they sacrificed to it, further proving their belief that it had the power to bless and save them. They are associating Yahweh with an image of an idol and their rescue from Egypt. It was as if now finally, in their eyes, Yahweh could be properly worshipped and his presence properly represented among them. Since God himself had chosen his ways of personal manifestation in the past, through fire, through smoke, through an overpowering voice, the people's choice of an idol of their own making, who could not do any of these things, was also a rejection. What they could see and touch at their convenience was what they wanted, a God who would let them live how they wished, have a good time when they wanted to, and who would not impose his covenant requirements on them. By their actions... Aaron and the people he led showed themselves to still be Egyptian Israelites who saw the bull as a representation of a truly powerful god. They demonstrated that they were longing for a return to the thinking they grew up with in Egypt. In retrospect, they seemed more comfortable with as well. It was better than what they were experiencing now. The people were so wedded to their old culture that they could manage to justify in their minds its false religion even to the point of the type of animals used to represent their God. Old habits and ways of thinking die hard. In times of stress, people often revert to them, even though they are useless or destructive and begin to rely on the human wisdom in a fallen world. When we aren't sure what God is doing, when we're frustrated in the waiting that God has chosen for us, we are faced with resisting old temptations. We want to go back to relying on ourselves. We think we have to do something to fix this thing. Instead, it's an opportunity to continue trusting in God, who has been kind and faithful, who remains and will always be good and kind and faithful to those who put their hope in him. In verse 10 and following, we get a window into the humility of Moses. We see he has no interest in replacing Abraham as the patriarch of the nation when God proposes a threefold judgment to unleash his anger, destroy the current nation of Israel, and make a new nation of Moses. While this plan may have appealed to Moses to have these troublesome Israelites done away with, he is willing to give up his eternal life rather than see the nation of Israel eliminated from the earth. He petitioned God with three arguments that drew on God's character of consistency and faithfulness. Moses shows his whole concern is not just for the people, but for the fulfillment of Yahweh's plan of redemption involving the people. Remember back in Genesis 18, we saw the same thing with Abraham. He appealed to God's character and past faithfulness on behalf of the city of Sodom. God's will will be done but he allows opportunities for faith to grow and trust in his character to grow through prayer. What was one of the first things we learned about Moses when God called him to lead his people out of Egypt? He had a speech impediment. He was not an eloquent or convincing speaker, and we can surmise his prayers were not necessarily eloquent either. God is not interested in the quality of how we string words together. Moses' prayer was not more convincing in its arguments than many prayers in the Bible. Would it work? Of course Moses hoped so, but his confidence was not in his prayer. It was based on his relationship with Yahweh. Because of who he knew God to be, Moses could expect his prayer to be treated with compassion. He was the one Yahweh had chosen to bring the people out of Egypt and into the promised land and to only accomplish half the goal— would hardly fulfill the expectation of faith that God had put within him. Reminding God of his promises in verses 11 to 13 was not necessary. It was a means of showing Moses' faith in who God is. The response of God reveals his willingness to respond to a prayer of a righteous person, prayed not for selfish reasons, but out of a desire to see God's will accomplished. This does not mean that God agreed to do nothing about the people's sin against him. What he threatened was to completely destroy Israel. And what he ended up doing was punishing them with a plague, a lesser punishment, but by no means an acquittal. In verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of. Some translations actually say God changed his mind. However, in Genesis 6, we saw the same language, the same Hebrew words in the lead up to Noah. Just as in Genesis 6, God was grieved because of what man was doing. God will not destroy the people, but the relationship is cut off. Moses' intercession, appealing to God's power, his testimony to the foreign nations, and the Abrahamic covenant of land, seed, and blessing make clear how Moses has grown tremendously in spiritual things and become a fitting leader for the immature children of Israel. Verse 15, we see that Moses has begun to think like God when we see him, um, when he comes down the mountain and sees what the people are doing. Like God, he is angry. He throws down the tablets, destroys the calf, and forces the people to drink the water that he has strewn the remains of the calf into. Moses is angry at the people, at their unbelief, at their disobedience, at their rebellion against God. We see the same anger in Christ when he saw the unbelief of the apparent religious leaders of Israel, who's leading, those leading people in sin and rebellion against God. This is what is called righteous anger, and Paul speaks of it in Ephesians 4, 6, when he exhorts his readers to be angry but do not sin. Moses see the people, sees the people enthusiastically involved in pagan practices and throws the tablets down and shatters them at the base of the mountain. The language here is important for two reasons. The tablets thrown down in shatters signifies that Israel has broken their covenant. The relationship is over. It is canceled. Also, the foot of the mountain was the people's official meeting place, where they worshiped, where they met with God, which we saw in chapter 19. The covenant has been breached and there would be consequences, punishment for sin. Moses' action is done where all can see And understand the significance. Aaron was Moses' mouthpiece, his representative while Moses was away. When he yielded to the people's demand, Moses had every reason to be angry with him, to speak harshly after hearing Aaron's lies and excuses. Aaron played what my kids' kindergarten teacher called the blame game. It's your fault for being gone so long, we didn't know when or if you'd ever return. And you know the people. What if they got mad at me and demoted me? They're very influential, you know. Where have we heard this before? The blame game goes all the way back to Genesis when Eve complained that the serpent deceived her. And then we saw Adam's excuse. The woman you gave me. Again, nothing new under the sun. We can sympathize with people who are in tough circumstances. A difficult trial an unusual test and temptation, but we must never sympathize with sin. Sin is what made it necessary for a redeemer, what Christ died for on the cross. What do you think Moses' reaction to Aaron's account of what happened? The people gave me their gold, I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) Aaron did the best he could to cover up his own sin, his own rebellion, and make himself look as good as possible in this impossible scenario. Didn't Moses laugh and look at him incredulously? Did he say, seriously? Don't we do the same thing? Justify a bad attitude, candy coat selfish actions or motivations? Apologize with the word if or but, which doesn't take complete ownership of a wrong. If I hurt you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you were hurt, but... And here comes the excuse, the justification for our actions. Moses then calls for a decision. He calls out for anyone who is on the Lord's side to come to him. And who came? All the sons of Levi. Where have we seen the tribe of Levi but called out before? Genesis 49, when the tribe of Levi was cursed along with the tribe of Simeon by their father Jacob for Levi's fierce anger and cruel wrath. They were to be scattered in Israel without a land to call their own. Despite this very dire curse, we see a beautiful picture of restoration. When given the chance to stand for Yahweh, they immediately did so. Were they involved in the pagan worship? Probably. But they did not hesitate to turn from that and run to God. They were used to help Moses, and therefore Yahweh purge the sin and purify the Israel nation. Only these men stood for Yahweh. This was not a time for hesitation. They couldn't ask for a little more time, maybe until tomorrow, to decide. Their duty was to come to Moses immediately. Moses instructs them to kill brothers, companions, and neighbors who would not repent with a sword. The sons of Levi were obedient to this command, and that day 3,000 Israelites who would not turn in repentance from their sin were killed. And for now, Israel was purged of the sin of idolatry. And Moses is once again the mediator between God and his people, rooting out sin and evil to protect the holiness of God, who cannot tolerate sin. In verse 29, the tribe of Levi, the only one who stood up for Yahweh, is ordained by Moses for the service of the Lord and blessed for their obedience. They went on to become the priestly tribe of the nation Israel. What a beautiful picture of restoration from where they started in Genesis 49. The last words we see from Moses in chapter 32 are confession and intercession. Could Paul in Romans 9 be of the same mind as Moses as he agonized over the people of Israel? He would willingly give up his own eternal destiny in order to save his people, Israel, that they might not have to pass into eternity without a mediator, the Messiah. As we inch closer to the end of Exodus, we have seen the similarities between Moses and Christ's earthly life and ministries, which cause us to see Moses as a type of Christ. But here we see one big difference between Christ and Moses as mediators at the end of chapter 32. Moses understands there are consequences for sin and a payment must be made, and he tries to make a bargain with God. If you will forgive this people their sin, then let me undergo judgment. And if not, blot me out of the book that you have written. But Moses, a sinner, cannot atone for the sin on behalf of his people, which points to a need for a better Moses, which we see in Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. This passage points us to verse 11 in chapter 33, where God speaks with Moses face to face as with a friend, indicating a beautiful and intimate relationship between them. God gives Moses the law. In fact, to the Jewish people, the law and Moses were synonymous. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see it referred to as the law of Moses. Yet, as great as Moses was, Christ was greater. Both faithfully faithfully fulfilled their individual divine appointments to care for God's people. But Christ, as Hebrews says, is counted worthy of more glory than Moses because he is equal with God. Therefore, only he can be the perfect sacrifice necessary for our atonement, our payment for sin, the only one worthy to pay the price necessary so we can be seen as righteous before a holy God who cannot tolerate sin in his presence. He is now at the right hand of God because full atonement has been made by which we and all men can be delivered from an eternity of judgment that we deserve. This truth is so beautifully foreshadowed in these chapters that we're looking at today. At the beginning, the story was so sad, so unbelievably atrocious. We've seen the stark warning of the ugly beast of idolatry, whether on the exterior with worshiping an image that replaces God, or on the inside, allowing something or someone to replace God in our hearts as the object of our worship and praise, what we give our energy to. And by the end, we see the second point in our outline, the beauty of forgiveness, repentance, and restoration, an illustration of our perfect mediator. Do you belong to him? Have you answered the call he makes to us all? Christ's atonement for our sin enables us to give ourselves wholly unto him and not live, like Spurgeon said, in the in-betweenities. I love his words. Are we who have already answered the call to come thankful for our Savior who is greater than Moses, greater than David, a priest after the order of Melchizedek who has offered the atoning sacrifice by which sins must be completely paid for and forgiven and removed? Or do we take that relationship for granted as Israel had? This part of the narrative concludes with a reminder that however deeply corrupted Israel may be at this point, Yahweh remained their God and they his people, his special possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation that he created them to be in chapter 19, verse 6. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Chapter 33 shows us that the Israelites were forgiven, by, but God no longer dwelled with them. Only Moses had the privilege of communion with God, and the people would watch from their tents as he would go outside the camp to meet with him. As Moses was again mediating for the people of Israel, making it clear that he refuses to go further without God's presence, God renews his promise to the people. He promises to give them rest. He wants to affirm to Moses that he will keep his covenant. And he does this by granting Moses' request to show him his glory, making his glory pass before Moses and reveal his name to him. Teenagers, we've all been one. Let's go back to when you were in your teenage years and you continually broke curfew. I know some of you did. Your parents gave you guidelines. Be home at a certain time. Call if you're going to be late. You, and, but you decide not to follow those rules. And, parent, and eventually your parents say it's over. And you beg and plead for mercy. Your parents may relent, but there are new and stricter rules now. Trust has been broken and needs to be built back up. Is it the same relationship? No. But that is not what we see here. Rather, we witness the beauty of God's forgiveness. He restores exactly what was there before. It's as if nothing had happened. Chapter 34 opens with that beautiful picture of restoration that is seen in two ways when Moses is commanded to meet God on the mountain. First, God tells Moses, be ready in the morning. Second, no one is to come with you. Just as he did in Exodus 19. It's as if chapter 32 never happened. God goes back to chapter 19 and starts fresh. And we can see this as the great do over. This is the kindness of God, full forgiveness and full restoration. And Moses obeys as the Lord commanded him. But next, we see a significant difference from Exodus 19 God descended in the cloud. Before, it was the angel of the Lord in the cloud the pre-incarnate Christ, and now Yahweh is in the cloud. The passage says that God stood with him there. In the Hebrew, it's the idea of resoluteness, standing at attention, standing your ground. Often this verb in the Hebrew is used to describe the priesthood. This is what God is doing in the intercessory and priestly position. God proclaims who he is with adjectives or attributes of his character, the unchanging, essential nature of God. He shows He shows us what he does, his actions, and his characterization. What is a characterization? It's what you habitually do over and over and over in every situation, no matter what. The list begins with grace that is sufficient for this time, for every time. And then compassion, which comes from the word for womb, with the idea of being connected, intensely caring, empathetic. Next is graciousness. What God does because of his grace and compassion for us. Slow to anger means long-nosed. It takes a long time before God shows his wrath. He does not have a short fuse. He is abounding in loving kindness and truth. Because of who he is, the list of his character attributes, and what he does over and over, we know God will do whatever it takes to keep a promise, and if he has to change the world around us to do it as he did with the parting of the Red Sea, he will. That's loving kindness, and he is abounding in it. As God renews his covenant with his people, in verse 10, Moses' response is to fall down and worship, acknowledging that God's previous description of Israel is true. They're a stiff-necked people, but he intercedes on their behalf for forgiveness and for his presence to go on before them. The good news of God's forgiveness and restoration is apparent when Moses returns from his time with God, not only by his shining face, but when he announces to the people that God has renewed his covenant. As he spells out this new old covenant, they can see nothing has changed. God's forgiveness is complete, there is no partial forgiveness. All the privileges of being God's chosen people stay intact. There is no change in their status. God promises them rest and that he will dwell with them. Moses wants the people to see this difference between God and Pharaoh, who was relentless in his demands for more and more work and his desire to keep Israel as far away from him as possible. Remember, it was only a few months before this that Israel was still under the iron hand of Pharaoh, and now God promises them rest and to dwell with them. What a difference we see in the heart of the people from where we started out today in chapter 32. By chapter 36, several weeks later, Moses is telling the people in verse 6 to stop. They had given so much more than was needed to build the tabernacle. The word restrained is the idea of the people needing to be held back in their generosity We see in these next chapters, 36 through 40, an almost exact replica of what came in chapters 25 to 31. Why? Did Moses have a required word count, and he ran out of things to say, so he did an early version of copy and paste? No. This was a very deliberate process often used in the Bible, and we see this in Acts, where there are three complete accounts of Paul's vision on the way to Damascus in chapter 9, 23, and 26. And so we see this is not just a space filler. God wants to be sure that the priests, Aaron and his sons, are reminded of just how important it is to follow his instructions completely. They are responsible for making sure that people worshiped God properly, when and where and as they should. It was not about being sure they went through the motions, but God desired to have his people as close to him as possible and as close as his holiness would allow and for them to be reminded of their dependency on him, lest they stray into old beliefs and behaviors. The repetition was meant to be preventative. Idolatry, to which the Israelites were always inclined, made worship very easy and convenient. Any high hill, any green tree would provide a site for a simple altar and a place to sacrifice. God understands our weaknesses because he created us exactly the way we are, as we see in Psalm 103:14, he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. God requires his people to worship him in a far more noble and elaborate way than a hill or a tree and to house his symbol, the ark, a movable house, so he could always reside as their monarch amid his people. No Israelite who truly desired to please Yahweh and worship him properly could ever claim to have been unaware of how to worship him at one central location in a properly furnished house of divine design, not of human planning. Once the work is finally done, Moses begins the inspection, and this is hardly a cursory look over what's been done. God had given him specific instructions, a blueprint, if you will, We couldn't help but notice the the detailed description of each item. When Moses checked the work, he was not looking for an ark covered in gold. He was looking for what would correspond exactly in every detail to what God had shown him on Mount Sinai. His inspection was a matter of quality control, not merely a determination of the completion of required assignments. Remember a few weeks ago when Whitney Gamble Smith encouraged us to look for repeated words and phrases as we read these chapters? And here's a shining example of what, we, what she was talking about. As Moses made his way through this thorough inspection, we saw a certain phrase repeated 17 times between chapters 39 and 40. And I'm sure you caught it in your lesson. As the Lord commanded. This was a very different commentary than what we started out with today, isn't it? Obe- obedience illustrates the beauty of repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. And as a dear friend of mine always reminds me, Obedience brings blessing. In the midst of many other repeated words and phrases, there is another phrase that jumped out at me as I studied. I saw it seven times in the description in the building of the tabernacle. Seven times there was the mention of blue, purple, and scarlet threads. I couldn't help but be reminded of a trip we took to Israel, and while in the little town of Nazareth, they were showing us how they dyed threads. They showed us the methods that were used to weave beautiful baskets. However, they pointed out three colors that could not be changed. They were permanent, blue, scarlet, and purple. Isaiah 118 says, "'Though our sins be as scarlet, a permanent color that cannot be changed, "'they will be as white as snow. "'Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. "'Our sin makes us guilty but does not have to be permanent. "'By the blood of Christ we are made clean.'" Snow and wool are naturally white and therefore portray our guilt being removed when we repent and are forgiven. David refers to this beautiful picture in Psalm 51, his psalm of confession and repentance. In verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Now back to our passage. The inspection is complete, and in chapter 39, verse 42 and 43, at where we read, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. As the Lord commanded, so they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. We don't know what that blessing was, but we can assume it was a prayer that the people and the tabernacle would please God, and that he would therefore bless them. It was a reassurance for the people that what they had done was approved and and that they were in favor with their covenant Lord, Yahweh. What a display of forgiveness. Remember where we started in chapter 32, the rebellion of the people, the rejection of their authority, both Moses and God? We now see their obedience and submission to Moses' leadership and how much work they did to follow Moses' instructions exactly. Exactly. And when the result is all the Lord commanded them was done, they were blessed. God does not hold grudges. Israel tasted separation from God and had learned and now know obedience is the only way to be close to God. That God then commands the tabernacle to be put up on the first day of the first month. It has now been a full year since the children of Israel left Egypt. And what a year it's been. To acknowledge the new year, God commands his dwelling to be put up. This indicates that it could be put up in one day. It was meant to be portable, easily put up, and taken down. After all the detailed description that went on for chapter after chapter, we don't expect this, but worship was so important to the traveling Israelites. They needed something that could be assembled and disassembled quickly and not hinder their ability to be ready to move at the command of the Lord. The following verses record Moses putting the tabernacle together piece by piece. And then comes a startling comment in verse 35. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting. Had God not shown Moses his glory in chapter 35? Had not Moses spent a total of 80 days on Mount Sinai in his presence, speaking to him as a friend face to face? Was he not God's representative to the people, the one who walked closely with God? Didn't he oversee the building and placement of all the furniture and inspected it to make sure it was exactly as God had prescribed? Why then could he not enter? Moses, like all men, was sinful. God is holy and cannot tolerate sin in his presence. God makes it clear that his tabernacle is his dwelling place, Yahweh's house, and no one else's. If you have ever moved into a new house, you know it and the mortgage belong to you, not the builder. And this is what the Israelites had built the tabernacle to become God's dwelling place, as close to his chosen people as possible in light of his holiness. Eventually, Moses and Aaron would be able to enter the tabernacle, but we must wait for what comes next to learn how Leviticus. Leviticus will show what the people have to do to be able to dwell with God, to see his glory. Now that God in his holiness would dwell that close to the people who were sinful, there would be sacrifices that need to be made in in order to be in God's presence, a payment for sin. And again, pointing to the need for a perfect mediator, a perfect sacrifice. How is your heart impacted this week as you see the beauty of God's forgiveness and restoration what a joy to understand he is the same God who forgives and restores us today when we repent and run from the, from the ugliness of, the, of our sin. Paul Twiss has a wonderful overview of the Pentateuch that I listened to last summer as we were anticipating this year-long study. Paul pointed out that in Exodus, God has shown Israel that they are his chosen people, set apart from the other nations with the ability to be right with him. But how? They were eager for what comes next, the book of Leviticus, to learn what was expected of them as a result. Do we look forward to Leviticus with that same kind of anticipation? If you started a reading through the Bible program just a month ago, how is it going? Usually by the time you hit Leviticus, it becomes a little dry and difficult to slog through. But keep in mind, Israelite people were anxious to hear what comes next. Let's pray that we can be too. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. Thank you, thankful for the lessons you teach us through the book of Exodus. Thank you for your perfect sacrifice so that we could have salvation and be seen as righteous before a holy God. May we never take that relationship for granted, but seek to be obedient to you and therefore as close to you as possible. Thank you for the opportunity we have to do that. Thank you for our time in our groups. And as we go through our lessons, may the ladies be encouraged and blessed by what they learn from one another. In your holy name, amen.